All right, thank you. Good morning, all. My name is Donovan. If we haven't met, I'd love to say hi at some point. Um, I'm going to pray. I always pray, need help uh, for preaching, but I literally got up this morning, Sunday morning, to review my notes, as I often do, and I just felt like they were garbage. So I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> so let's see. Not sure exactly where we're going. So let's lean into the Lord. We've got His Word here, His Spirit. God, thank you that we can lean into you, that you are living God. You are God and there is no other. God, you have sworn by yourself, you tell us in this text. There's nothing else to swear by but yourself. You have placed your reputation in your church. And uh, so I just count on that, I bank on that, and I pray that you would reveal yourself through Redeemer, through the global church, God, the, the weak church that is despised in the world and mocked, that you would show yourself faithful and mighty. Be with me as we sort through these verses and these notes and uh, pray that you would be helpful, that you would help me be helpful, and that we would uh, be reminded who you are and who we are in you. Amen. Before I get into this, I do want to make one point of clarity. Last week, um, if you saw last week's sermon, someone told me I needed to relax. Well, that was re- that's how I relax. <laughs> Scream about God. So um, I said something. I was talking about being concerned about the pandemic and its impact on the church, particularly this church, and you know, being concerned about giving and who knows, maybe someday staffing. And I want to be clear. So, because someone asked me after the service, how's the, how's the giving? Are we broke? You know, and it's like, no, no, no. God has been really faithful through you guys. The giving's down a little bit. I don't know that that's because of the pandemic. The point is, there's no crisis and we're not about to fire anyone. I was just more like, it's where my mind goes, right? When I look at the current context and I start going down to what if this, what if this, what if that? So, if that was unclear, I apologize. Um, we are moving right along, all right? So, God's been really, really gentle to us in that. Uh, I know that hasn't been the case for a lot of businesses and churches, so just a point of clarity. So we're in the book of Isaiah here, and we are in chapter 45. Um, Many of you have been in Isaiah with us for months, and you kind of get the context, but let me just sum this up really quickly. The book of Isaiah is a book about God's people, right, pre-Christ, several hundred years before Christ, living in the nation of Israel, and they rejected God and went after idols. God judged them took them off to captivity in Babylon. And now where we're at is they are being released. God raised up King Cyrus, we talked about that last week, to set the captives free. He was a pagan king. He was not a man who worshipped God and doesn't even know God. And yet God grabbed him and used him to set the Israelites free and to send them back to their land. He is God's instrument. So today we're going to look at verses 14 through 25 of chapter 45. So at the beginning of chapter 14 here, I think what I'm going to do is just work through this verse by verse right now and uh, make sense of this text. So chapter 45, verse 14. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. 
they shall follow you. He is talking to King Cyrus still. It's a little bit of a continuation from last week. He raised up King Cyrus. Cyrus rampages through the Middle East, the ancient Near East, and takes over kingdoms, right, including Babylon and also Egypt, Cush, and the Sabaeans. And God is saying to him, their wealth will be yours, King Cyrus, because I'm giving them into your hand. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. And they will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. In that time and day and culture, every nation would have a God that they would worship. And when they had victory, they would declare that God was on their side. Their God was obviously the champ. So when Cyrus is raised up and storms through the ancient Near East, destroying and uh, capturing all the cultures and all the empires, they would declare then, that surely the true God is in Cyrus. So God is doing this. He's raising up Cyrus to make his name great and declare and uh, display that he is the only God. There is no God besides him. Now, verse 15 turns to talking to God. Truly you are a God who hides himself, right? There's a great book out there called uh, The Pleasures of God, uh, written by John Piper. Where the basic premise is, what does, you know, you can tell the measure of a man by the measure of his pleasures, right? What are you into? Well, that's the measure of a man. It says, likewise with God. Well, what's God into? What are his pleasures? We get to know the pleasures of God and we get to know his character. And one of the things in that book is that God takes pleasure in hiding. He hides. He reveals. We're going to talk about that today. He reveals himself to his people. He reveals himself to the world. But he also hides. He does it in a hidden way that confounds the wisdom of men. So I suggest that book, I suggest that chapter, and I suggest we look at the cross of Christ. This is where that comes to fulfillment. God is hiding in plain sight. 1 Corinthians tells us that the gospel we preach, which is God crucified, is folly and weakness to the world. Nobody wants that. That's not the life we want. We don't want to be nailed to a cross. We don't want to be bloody and murdered. That's not glory. And God hides behind that. And then when he opens the eyes of his children, they see that is glory. This is power and wisdom. God is a God who hides himself. And here, what he's doing in Isaiah is he's hiding behind this pagan king to confound the wisdom of the world. Look at this, verse 16. All of them are put to shame. So shame is a strong theme In this passage, we'll come back to that. They're put to shame and confounded. Who? The makers of idols. They go in confusion. So he's talking about pagan kings and just people in general who put their trust in anything other than God. He says, we will be put to shame. But Israel, as opposed to those who go in confusion, is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame to shame. I've talked before about how shame has been a strong component of of my life and probably many of you. I think it's a common human experience. We go to all lengths to avoid shame. We do not want to be shamed. Shame is, um, I don't know, when Glenn, Glenn was talking about this idea of coming in cold, right? Coming in to worship God and you feel cold. And he said it was, what was the word you used, Glenn? Bothersome. 
bothersome. Shame is to feel bothersome about your being, about who you are, the choices you make, and the things you do. And this world conspires to shame people. We shame people. We shame others. They shame us. Shame drives culture. I think probably, I don't know, 98%. I made that up. A significant, a significant portion of the energy that drives the world is avoiding shame. That's what drives cancel culture. Avoiding shame is why 60 years ago, almost everyone said they were a Christian. Avoiding shame is why nowadays people will support almost any popular opinion. Avoiding shame. I don't want to be ashamed, right? To be seen, to be exposed, and to have the sense of being bothered by what we are. And what God is saying here is that there's a day coming, the great day of the Lord, when he comes, Jesus comes riding on the clouds. All those who make idols will experience shame, regret that they have wasted their lives, right? There's a little shame. Like if you trip over something, that's a little shame, right? People see you like experience a little shame. There's big shame. There's big shame. Like if you wreck your ministry or marriage and that comes crashing down and see, we have a way of pushing things out. Like it'll be all right. The hidden things will remain hidden. And God says, no, everything will be revealed and there will be huge shame, eternal shame. I mean, the amount of shame that will be poured out at the revelation of God on those who aren't hidden in him is unfathomable. There's nothing else to hide behind, no idols to grab, to stand naked. And the promise of God is that you, Christians, will stand naked and unashamed, fully exposed, known. Man, we don't know that. We hide. We hide. And there's mercy for that. But I see it. There's just so much tentativeness. Someone asked me if I had gotten much feedback on our, you know, we've had to make decisions about how we approach masks as a church. And, uh, and then we do. We talk about them, and we'll readdress those when necessary. Someone asked me, do I get much feedback when we put out stuff? And the answer is no. And it, I don't think it's because there isn't disagreement. I think it's because we have a strong tendency to hide. We avoid conflict. We, we embellish about our accomplishments. We can't apologize forthrightly and clearly. We are so ashamed. And what God is saying is that what he is about doing is bringing us to a place where we can be unashamed. And like just stand bare. Bare. That's what you want. You want to be naked. Right? You, we don't wear clothes because we are physically naked. We wear clothes because we're spiritually naked. There's really no physical reason to do this. Well, I mean, maybe in Iowa there is when it's cold, right? But <laughs> you go to the tropics, everyone should be butt naked <laughs> and unashamed. But something has gone wrong in the human heart where we experience deep shame. It's a spiritual thing in there. 
and the, we have this outward manifestation, right? I mean, have you ever seen dogs wear clothes? I mean, you know, humans put clothes on dogs, right? That's how ashamed they are, even clothes their dogs. And I feel bad for a little dog looking like that, right? And then I think the dog probably feels bad for you. That's how you walk around? What is wrong with you? None of this stuff is in my notes. <laughs> Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. I read a quote this week about a man named Francis Newport. I'd never heard of him. I saw the quote and looked it up. First Earl of Bradford, 1600s, an atheist. And what happened was when he was on his deathbed, I believe God gave him a revelation, but it wasn't comforting. Because some will go and experience shame and regret. Here's his last words. You need not tell me there is no God, for I know there is one. God's revealing himself to him. But not in a tender way. And I am in his presence. And he's not happy. You need not tell me there is no hell. I feel myself already slipping. Wretches, cease your idle talk about there being hope for me. I know that I am lost forever. Oh, that fire. Oh, the insufferable pangs of hell. Oh, that I could lie for a thousand years upon that fire that is never quenched to purchase the favor of God and be united to him again. But it is a fruitless wish. Man, such regret. Millions and millions of years will bring me no nearer to the end of my torments than one poor hour. Oh, eternity. Eternity forever and ever. Oh, the insufferable pangs of hell. So God is revealing to him. And this is the experience of shame. And I've thought upon this, like, gosh, what would hell be like? Like, is it the fire? Like, what would be worse? The fire, the physical pain, the burning, or the eternal regret? Like, just regret, like you have felt regret. Now imagine that amplified to its infinite power and it's never ceasing this sense of feeling it's bothersome like I feel like I want to shed who I am and myself and I can't and that's all I have for all eternity that's the kind of shame that God says is coming so he cries out in verse 22 turn to me and be saved therefore that doesn't have to be your experience Israel who's Israel those who believe in Christ the people of God, that will not be their experience. They will be saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation, as opposed to everlasting shame and regret and confusion, everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame. We sing that song, right? In the first verse, we say, he will not be put to shame. That's Christ. Why? Because he's perfectly holy, righteous, he's never done anything wrong, no regrets, he stands naked before his father, celebrated and praised, no shame, he will not be put to shame. And you, if you believe and hide in him, will not be put to shame. This is the way out, in Christ. 
I want to fast forward to verse 22. Turn to God. So many of you out there are Christians, and you've come to him, and I would just say, turn again. Just sit there, rest. Like we need to learn that, to rest Right To be saved is, a, is a, in a moment, we're born again, we're adopted, but Paul also tells us that we are being saved, that all of Christian life is being saved, finding our rest in him, shutting out the madness of the world, the voices that are telling us to be ashamed. God says, turn to me. And to those who are far from him, who have yet to do that, turn to him. Turn to him. He's merciful. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. Right? He has staked his glory on his church. I don't know if you remember this Old Testament passage where God brings Israel out of Egypt and then he's taking them to the promised land, right? And there's a lot of time that passes in between there and Israel's, you know, a naughty bunch, we'll put it that way. And God's like, I'm going to destroy them. And Moses prays for them. And what he says is this. You promised. You have said, you have staked your glory on this bunch. You have declared your glory. You have said that you are mighty to save. Wretches like them. God is mighty to save. Wretches like us. He has declared that. By himself, he will not fail. We sing of his faithfulness. Church, do you feel weak? You know, when the, when the world criticizes the church and says she's unimpactful and hypocritical, you know what? You're right. And our hope is not in our church. Our hope is in our God. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. He saves wretches. He saves jars of clay. He saves hypocrites. He saves people who don't share the gospel. It's not a reason to stay there and we want God to take us, but we are not our hope. We are not our hope. We fail at parenting. We fail at marriage. We fail at being witnesses in the workplace. We fail at global missions. We fail at racial reconciliation. We fail at social justice. You're right. But God never fails. That is our hope, and that is our song. We are saved by him, and he is God, and there is no other. Verse 23, by myself I have sworn, and from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return, which means this, he will do what he said. It won't return void. He will accomplish his work on this earth, and every knee will bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Every knee will bow, either in fear or in love. In fear or in love. Verse 24, only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. Not in his church. Only in the Lord, the one who saves. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In verse 25, here's where we're going to sit for a minute. In the Lord shall the offspring of Israel be justified and shall glory. All right. 
We shall, so the children of Israel, as God's people, we shall be justified. What does that mean? All the things that we have failed at, we have failed to love God and love people. Let's just sum it up that way. Our failings <laughs> are daily. All those things have been nailed to the cross in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He, the Father, this is familiar territory, right? Let's remind each other. He, the Father, made Him the Son who knew no shame, knew no sin, right? To become sin for us, to take our shame, to take our sin, to take our failings, so that in Him we may become the righteousness of God. This is the good news. Jesus takes our sin. Jesus takes our shame. We get His righteousness. We get His goodness. We are justified. Do you feel justified? Do you feel justified? I watch a lot of, you know, internet warrior stuff and and what I see is a lot of energy driven toward self-justification. Now that's not all there is, but man, what type of people would we be if we felt justified, right? Unashamed. 100% good and holy and righteous. This is what God is saying. He's taking you, me. I am a joke of a man. I just am. Some of you are impressed by me because I stand up here and talk and what I got gifts, but draw near and be afraid. Does that just fail? I am a jar of clay. I am weak. I get bitter at you. Can we be honest here? I'm horrible. And then God says, that person that you want to shed, you want to shed, it's bothersome. You're trapped in your flesh. You know, you, you want to be a certain way, but you can't. Romans 7 style, right, with Paul, and it's, it's bothersome. It clings so closely. I can't shed it. God says he will shed it. He has justified you. You are pure and holy and righteous and clean, and you can't believe it. How could it be? How could it be? And this goes for all of you. Church, you are justified and made right. And he says you will glory in that. Oh, to glory in that. What does that mean? We glory in things. Oh, this is great. Look at this car. Look at the new Tesla. I glory in those things. I do. I tell my, look at that Tesla. This cake. I mean, come on. All right, that's what you guys are into. All right. My wife. I glory in her a little. She's like, stop. <laughs> but there's, there's something there. See, why does she tell me to stop? We've talked about this before. Why does she say, it's too much? Because there's something in her that doubts. I don't deserve this. Now, I want to tell you something that... We have been trained in, a right, in the right way to glorify, glorify God. 
because he's holy and pure and righteous and clean and worth glorying in. So let's glorify him. And the highest form of glorification, flattery, is imitation. What God is saying in this text is that he is going to take us and make us like him. We will be justified, made right, made pure, made partakers in the divine nature, made little gods, in a sense. Pure, holy, undefiled, Ephesians 5. This is what Christ is doing to his church. Mm. Oh, see, where is it? It's in the Bible. (laughs) Ephesians 5. Did you see that? (laughs) Oh, that's mercy. Thank you. Okay. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So Christ, this is what we're going to learn about Jesus here. What is he doing? He gave himself up for her, so he died for her. What for? That he might sanctify her. That means set her apart and make her holy. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. So here's what God is doing to his church. He is washing her. The goal, the end vision at the end of history is that Christ is presenting the church. This is Christians in splendor. Now you wake up in the morning, do you see splendor? Some of you more than others. But real splendor. Like, think about this. We are being made like God. That God would delight in us. So, yeah, we glorify God for his work, but that work that is glorious is that he glorifies his church. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What does that mean? He made us pure, righteous, holy, without blemish. Without blemish. Oh, How does that bride feel standing in front of her groom if she's without blemish? Unashamed. Unashamed. That's where we're headed. Christ is coming to get his bride. To consummate history. To consummate the marriage. My brother-in-law, Garrett, who's a bit of a troublemaker, many of you know him, he called me up the other day and he says, are you a virgin? I was like, okay, he's up to something. Hold on, hold on, give me. Yes. Can't catch me. Why? Because I await the groom. This is what we're doing. And God is making us splendid. Splendid. Boy, that's something to glory in. splendid a little bit from c.s lewis on this idea of god making us splendid and delighting in us lewis struggled with the idea of people being glorified so a couple more bible verses just to i'm not talking nonsense here romans 8 
The creation anxiously awaits the revealing of the glory of the sons of God. Wait, the God? Yes. These things have become one. God's glory is infused in the church. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. God sings and delights over his bride, right? I will rejoice over you with loud singing, Zephaniah 317. 14. Jesus, right? The, the voice of God to his people at the end of history, when it's all said and done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Well, why are you calling us good? There's only one that's good. I have made you good. It's all together now. We shall glory in these things. Lewis struggled with that because it doesn't sound right. Wait a minute, God's the one that's supposed to be gloried in. And he says this, I suddenly remembered that no one can enter heaven except as a child. And nothing is so obvious in a child as its great and undisguised pleasure in being praised. We have uh, kids, a couple of them right now are like the cartwheel masters. And they literally want us to just watch them all day. <laughs> watch this, watch this, watch this. Watch. They, why, what are they looking for? Praise. Is that bad, self-centered? It can become that, but is it to want the father or the mother to say, I am pleased? Now, they go on way too long. I, I, I'm just like, that's enough. Will you get, show me quickly. <laughs> Come on. I'm, I mean, literally, it's how, I'm going downstairs. <laughs> quick, quick, show me your glory. <laughs> but see, that's, that's why I'm not a good father. But your father is ever attentive. He's not bored. And he doesn't have something else to do. It's the thing. It's the, that's it. In fact, you're the one scampering off with other things to do. And he's like, get over here. Let me delight in you. Do a cartwheel. And even though your cartwheels look like chickens instead of Zissa's, <laughs> he loves it. Nothing is so obvious in a child as its great and undisguised pleasure in being praised. Not only in a child either, but even in a dog or a horse. He calls it the specific pleasure of the inferior. Now, husbands, you all know this. No? Okay. You all married up is what I'm saying. The specific pleasure of the inferior, the pleasure of a beast before men. A child before its father, a pupil before his teacher, a creature before its creator. That is enough to raise our thoughts to what may happen when the redeemed soul, you, Christian, beyond all hope, this is why we glory in this, because it is beyond all hope. It isn't a waltz into heaven. We don't just skip our way there. It is hard. We are weighed down with the burdens of the world and we this bothersome flesh. It's almost beyond all hope. How could it be? How could it be? And nearly beyond belief. 
This redeemed soul learns at last that he or she has pleased him whom she was called to please. In the end, that face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe. Right? So the guy I read earlier, he was experiencing terror. That face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon us with one expression or with the other, either conferring glory inexpressible. What does that look like? Gosh. I mean, we have shadows. How many of you have fallen in love? That look. The look. You look into someone, and you're conferring glory to them, and approval and belonging. He's saying there's an infinite face with infinite power, an infinite pleasure, an infinite discernment will turn that face on you and either confer glory or shame either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. And God says, turn to me and be saved. Find, hide in me. It is written, Lewis continues, that we shall stand before him. (laughs) God. We shall appear. We shall be inspected. And the promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible, and only possible by the work of Christ, that we shall survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God. Like we're running around people pleasing. And it's empty. Check out this, this, there's like a, we seek the approval of people, but only of people that we have already approved of. Well, who's doing the approving here? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's called nonsense. But the reason we're doing it is we're seeking that approval, and God says, it's in me. I find you delightful. I find you significant. We shall find approval. We shall please God. To be a real ingredient, this is why I love C.S. Lewis, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness. You are an ingredient in the divine happiness. (laughs) What did he call it? Nearly beyond belief. This is one of those man-centered sermons, right? To be loved by God not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work, or a father and a son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. So I think that's why sometimes our weeks are rough, because we can't sustain that thought. (laughs) So we come together and we fight, go to the word, go to the song, go to one another, and ask God to give us the strength, the glory in that. That's what we're here to do, to glory in this, his work in Christ. So let's ask God to do that by his spirit. 
to break down the barriers of doubt and belief. So let me invite the response team up. And uh, yeah, we're going to linger in this. Truth. And uh, we'll sing. Right? Use this as a prayer. Pray, like fight for joy when you sing. Don't just, I know your affections aren't there. Beg, beg God to give you the power of the Holy Spirit to help you see and savor these things and sit in them and be transformed, right? And sent out unashamed. Thank you for those that give. I already talked a little bit about that. Thank you for your consistent support of this church. Um, you can do that online. Um, if you're watching online, there should be a link there for you. And we're going to take communion. Um, communion is a time to remember, right? This is what we're doing. This is our identity. We have been purchased by the Lamb. We are in Him. We are hidden in Him, moving toward glory, right? We are being saved, and that was inaugurated for us at the cross when Jesus died, took our sin, took our shame, gave us His righteousness, Jesus knew that the weeks would be rough and that these things would be hard to sustain. And so he says, do this regularly in remembrance. Call to remembrance. Remember who you are. Remember what I've done, that you shall have been justified and you will glory in this, right? And so hopefully you have a communion cup. If you don't, there, you can grab one by the entrance. And uh, this is a time to remember Jesus gave this to us as a mercy the night before he died, sitting with his disciples, knowing they would need to be reminded. He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you, right? His body is broken for us. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, the blood that's poured out for the sins that washes us clean. All right, we come to remember Lastly, if you have something that you feel like God has put on your heart, a word of something uh, of wisdom or prophecy for the church, we believe he does that sometimes. And so we encourage you to be open to the Spirit in that way. And if you believe he's given you something for the church, we ask that you submit that to Pastor Glenn, and he'll help you discern that. So let's go and let's glory <laughs> in these things. God, thank you. We are, these things are too big for us. We're just little uh, flesh bags and... Um, that's why you give us your spirit. And so I pray your spirit would be here mingling in, um, in our spirits and with our spirits and bring a sense of power, joy, freedom. Help us to conceive in some way, as Paul says, in the inner man, these things that you have promised and are doing. Call us deeply into them, God. We love you and we thank you. Amen.